Good evening, and I am very pleased to welcome you to our panel discussion uh, that ponders whether India can realise its potential. Uh, my name is Nick Bisley, and I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Uh, this evening's program is the third of our Asia, the next chapter series in which we present public discussions on the future prospects of key countries and issues in the region. Previous editions have focused on Southeast Asia's key archipelagic states, Indonesia and the Philippines, and tonight we turn our gaze to South Asia. Uh, this evening's event is a collaboration between La Trobe Asia and the Australia India Institute, and we are always extremely pleased to work with our friends from Barry Street. It's become something of a conventional wisdom to note that Asia is increasingly the centre of gravity in world politics, to use one of the more common and somewhat awkward metaphors. Uh, key to the growth of this sentiment is, of course, China's remarkable return to wealth, power and influence. But underlying the depth of the idea of an Asian century comes from the fact that states and societies outside the People's Republic are improving their lot. Most importantly, it is India's success and its striking potential that gives credibility to the belief that the coming decades will be dom dominated by developments in our region. India is a country of superlatives. Every five years, it holds the largest election in world history as its growing population propels electoral record-breaking. This young population promises not only a demographic dividend as 200 million people join the labour force over the coming generation, it will be the most populous country on the planet to boot. Uh, and in recent years, it has become the fastest growing large economy in the world. And as it becomes more integrated into the global economy, many feel that this trend line looks set to remain in place. Pundits and analysts argue that it has the right stuff to become the world, but to become world politics's next great power. And indeed, the country's prime minister certainly has the ambition and charisma to take a leading role in world affairs. And one has to admit that India has outstanding geopolitical bones. Yet India's capacity to have, to have potential remain forever one of its most important attributes should not be underestimated. There remain significant barriers to be overcome for economic growth to accelerate as hoped. These range from pollution to infrastructure, corruption to political gridlock. We must remember it took nearly two years for Narendra Modi's electoral success to be turned into meaningful economic reform with the recent passage of the GST. While his BJP coalition have been battered, excuse me, his coalition government's been battered in numerous regional elections. And while Modi's globetrotting has raised the country's profile and improved ties with non-resident Indians, the gap between great power ambition and the geostrategic reality of a developing country could not be more stark. So are the coming years likely to see India begin to take the steps that so many fervently hope to become a genuinely middle-income country? And what would this mean for its cities and its culture? Can the country be seen as a member of international politics elite club, not simply because of its demographic scale and its historical legacy, but because of its influence, its power, and its leadership? La Trobe Asia is extremely pleased with AII to bring together an outstanding panel to discuss these questions. I'll briefly introduce them, and then they will each speak for between 10 to 12 minutes each in the order I introduce them. And that will then, hopefully, leave us plenty of time for questions and answer. Uh, first up will be Ian Hall. Ian is a professor of international relations, and for his sins, which are clearly considerable, uh, the acting director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. Uh, to my right is Yamini Narayanan, a senior research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalization and an ARC DECRA fellow at Deakin University. 
Both Ian and Yamini are also Latrobe alums. Both of them worked briefly um, at various points in their past at Latrobe University. Um, finally, someone who actually does work at Latrobe University today is Ian Wolford. Ian is a lecturer in the Department of Languages, Linguistics and Asian Studies, where he heads up the Hindi program at Latrobe University. So the first of tonight's Ian's will begin. Thank you, Nick, and thanks very much to, to Latrobe Asia, to, uh, to Diana and Matt, and to Nick, of course, and to the Australia India Institute. It's been wonderful to carry on a collaboration uh, with, uh, with both, and also wonderful to come down to Melbourne. Um, look, if we compare India's place to, in the world today to where it was 25 years ago, at the very end of the Cold War, it's readily apparent that that place has changed very dramatically. Back in 1991, India's position was frankly, straightforwardly parlous. After two decades of economic growth that barely limped along with the rate of population growth, as corruption and regulation stifled enterprise, its finances were in a mess. The Gulf War, of course, brought things to a head, pushing up oil prices to the point where India almost ran out of foreign currency reserves and had to beg for a bailout loan from the IMF. And the conditions put on that loan were straightforwardly humiliating. It was a symbol of just how low India had fallen by 1991. India was effectively forced to pawn its gold, loading its bullion or a significant quantity of its bullion onto aircraft and flying it to Europe as surety for the loan. Diplomatically, things were just as bad. In the 50s, 60s and 70s, India had tried to make itself the leader of the developing world, arguing for decolonization and anti-racism with great success, and then for reforms to the liberal economic order uh, dominated by the West with arguably less success. This had earned a considerable respect amongst other states in the developing world, but it had alienated the United States, the Western Europeans, Japan, and states like Australia as well. And by the 1980s, they perceived India, rightly or wrongly, as diplomatically awkward and, in the words of one American India watcher, a basket case in economic terms. As the, as the Tigers the Asian tigers began to emerge in East Asia, in Japan, Singapore, Korea, and so on, and then other parts of Southeast Asia. Through liberal economic reforms, India began to look out of touch, even in its own wider region. And then when India saw its, its, its partner and a partial protector, especially in the UN Security Council, the Soviet Union collapsed on Christmas Day of 1991, its diplomatic troubles were complete. It was robbed of a friendly voice at the UN, an economic and technological partner, and of course, an arms supplier. Nearer to home, India was tied bound by domestic unrest and serious threats to its immediate borders. Things weren't much better, in other words, at home than they were abroad. A major insurgency in the Punjab ground on to an eventual bloody halt in the early 90s. In 1989, unrest broke out again in Kashmir, exacerbating India's ongoing sibling rivalry with Pakistan, up to and including a low-level, slow-moving nuclear arms race. These domestic insurgencies and nagging threats were persistent, time-consuming, energy-sapping, resource-intensive distractions. Today, of course, India's place in the world is very, very different, thanks largely to a number of policy shifts that India made in the early 1990s, uh, or through the 1990s. In the 1990s, India's elite did three things to try and improve its position. It launched a set of economic reforms to partially uh, open up and deregulate the economy. It then reached out to friendly states in East Asia, like Malaysia and Singapore, and then later on Japan, for investment and know-how in what became known as the Look East policy. And it tested five nuclear weapons and moved to make itself a fully-fledged nuclear-armed power in 1998. And these moves had three had major effects. The first two helped drive rates of economic growth through the 1990s and 2000s of between 6 and 9% or so. And this laid the groundwork for wider diplomatic and strategic collaborations. Uh, India started to look like a rising power with which others wanted to do business. 
and states like the ASEAN states and Japan did want to do business with India and still want to do business with India as a result. The nuclear tests, while heavily criticised at the time, not least by Australia, forced the United States in particular to take India seriously uh, and begin a high-level dialogue uh, and over time, as a result, Washington convinced itself, again rightly or wrongly, that New Delhi was more than just an irritant in a basket case, which is a way that it regarded it in the 1980s, but it was also an economic power and regional player whose interests aligned to a significant extent with the United States. Today, that relationship with the US is deepening and broadening. And it has to be noticed that the big changes in the relationship are mostly to India's advantage. The nuclear deal that the US struck with India from between 2005 and 2008, which allowed India to keep its nuclear weapons but stay outside the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, and to access civilian nuclear technologies, is a major boost for India. It effectively normalised India's nuclear weapons. The evolving defence cooperation, and we've seen today a logistics agreement signed between the Indian Defence Minister and, and, the, and his American counterpart, evolving defence cooperation in a range of areas has also... Uh, being greatly to India's advantage. And so too has the trade, trade in goods and services. Some now count that at around $100 billion a year, 10 times what it was in 1991. So as that relationship's been transformed, so too has India's relationship with the Europeans, the Japanese, and indeed Australians, as they've followed America's lead. And they also want to work with India, of course, on how to manage rising China. Here, India's options are very much constrained. It's fair to say, indeed, that managing China poses the biggest and most complex challenge to India than any other international issue, and its freedom to manoeuvre is limited. As with the US, India's relationship with China uh, has been transformed since 91, but the core challenges are the same as they were in 91. The border dispute, uh, the contested border between the two, and China's all-weather friendship, as it's sometimes called, with Pakistan. And they haven't changed. What has changed is China's ability to pressure India, and that's changed because of, e of China's economic growth. If you go back to 91, China's economy was only about a third, the third bigger than India's. In fact, if we go back to 1980, they're about the same. Since then, the gap has widened dramatically, and China's economy at about $11 trillion in 2015 is five times the size of India's at about $2 trillion or so. From money comes power, in crude terms, and China clearly has significantly more that it can use to influence India and other states. So the border dispute that's been inherited was inherited uh, in the late 1940s. The two fought a war over the border in 62, but having beaten India, Mao took his forces back to what's now called the line of actual control. In the 1980s, there began a, a series of talks about talks, process of talks leading to supposedly substantive negotiations, but there's been very little progress. And cross-border incidents persist with incursions across the, the LAC, the line of actual control, occurring fairly regularly, especially when China wants to pressure India, as some analysts argue. This issue isn't insignificant. China, after all, claims all of an Indian state, around 80,000 square kilometers of territory with a population of 1.5 million people. And the border areas are strategically important, especially to China. China needs the areas that it claims in the western sector so that it can operate a road between Tibet and Xinjiang. In the eastern sector, adding what China calls South, South Tibet, Arunachal Pradesh, to the People's Republic would arguably give a greater security to Tibet. China's relationship with Pakistan is even more, adds another element of complexity to all of this. The two grow very close in the 1960s, um, but especially close in, from the 1970s onwards, after India's intervention in Pakistan. So the two today are building a much more robust economic relationship, including a China-Pakistan economic corridor, which may allow China to bypass much of the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, and Strait of Malacca, to allow its oil to flow to a port in Pakistan and then to be transported by road into, into China. 
So managing China on these fronts, in terms of the relationship with Pakistan, in terms of the border and so on, uh, we're active, we're, and in, elsewhere in South Asia and in the Indian Ocean, where China is active in investing, trading, and attempting to leverage those things into diplomatic influence, is very difficult for India, and it poses, I think, the biggest set of foreign policy challenges that it presently faces. These are challenges that it has to surmount, though, if India is to successfully transition towards a developed economy with all that, all that implies for its people and to play the role of a major power or a leading power, as Narendra Modi wants it to be, in international relations, shaping global governance. If it handles these challenges badly, China could well obstruct its efforts and prevent India from emerging in these ways. So over the last 25 years, India has trod quite carefully with China, trying not to antagonize it, but also try to boost its capacity to resist Chinese attempts to coerce it into doing things it doesn't want to do. It's tried to avoid public confrontations with China on multiple issues, the border, Pakistan, the trade deficit, even the independence of Tibet, which some Hindu nationalists would like to see raised, and indeed others would like to see raised with Beijing. And it's tried to work with China on areas of shared concern to try and build closer connections, Issues like climate change, for example, back in 2009, India and China worked together to block agreement on a US-brokered deal. At the same time, though, India's hedged its bets. It's developed its nuclear deterrent, primarily aimed at deterring China, not Pakistan, and it's forged, as an extra set of guarantees, a series of security partnerships, strategic partnerships, with states like the US and Japan, and indeed with Australia. Whether this care has paid dividends in, is a much-debated issue in New Delhi. The China optimists think that more cooperation with China is possible and that in any case, as the US declines, relatively or absolutely, it will be necessary to more, work more, more closely with Beijing in a China-centric world, and particularly a China-centric Asia. Skeptics, on the other hand, think that China is trying to stifle India's economic growth and emergence as a major power, and they point to episodes like the recent Chinese bloc on India's bid to join the nuclear suppliers group for evidence. Some of them think that China's approach can be altered if India distances itself from the US and moves back towards non-alignment or something like it. Others think that China's approach will only change if India is more assertive, rapidly building a functional nuclear deterrent, modernizing its conventional forces, denying China economic opportunities in South Asia and the Indian Ocean, forging much more, something much more like an alliance with the United States and maybe also with Japan, even in indulging for some of the wilder skeptics in New Delhi, trying to destabilize Tibet or trying to use Vietnam as a proxy to irritate the Chinese, just as the Chinese use Pakistan to their, in their view. Under Narendra Modi, for the last two or two and a bit years, India's China policy has arguably run through all of these different options. In the early days, Modi and Xi Jinping had a brief bromance with reciprocal visits, and Modi signed up to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization and put in a bid for membership. Since then, the romance, however, has worn off, especially with incidents like the nuclear suppliers group debacle. There are plenty of signs of, of this in New Delhi's behavior, uh, but let me point to one. As Modi heads to the G20 in China, he'll stop off in Vietnam on the way. So earnest wooing has given way to passive aggressive needling, I think. Whether Modi's China policy and his wider foreign policy will work and will allow India to play a bigger role as a leading power, which is a stated aim, is going to depend on what India does at home as well. Modi came to power portraying himself as a development man, and that's the role that India needs him to play, because India needs to be more open, richer, less corrupt, easier to do business with, better regulated, better taxed, and better served by decent infrastructure to give it the clout it needs to tackle the many foreign policy challenges it faces. For that reason, I've argued elsewhere, Modi's taking advantage of the current uncertainty about regional order. 
about the place of the United States in Asia, about the intentions of Beijing, and so on, to pursue a policy of what I and others have called um, multi-alignment, trying to build better relations with every major state that's willing to do business, every possible sort of source of investment, every uh, business that's interested in making in India, for example, in know-how, technology transfer, export opportunities, and so on, regardless of whether the money is Chinese or German. Modi is trying to woo oil gulf, uh, gulf oil producers and investment funds, but also trying to deepen intelligence sharing with Israel. He's buying Russian military hardware, but he's selling software support to the Americans, and so on. This is multi-alignment. It's doing business with everyone. It is, as Shashi Thoreau rightly pointed out, a promiscuous strategy, but it's one that seems so far to be working. It's the diplomatic equivalent of making hay while the sun shines, but doing so frenetically uh, at Modi's pace, because everyone sees the clouds on the horizon. So, on the one hand, India's place in the world is quite different than once, what it once was, and India is in a much, more, a much stronger position to get what it wants. And India matters in particular to others in a way that it didn't, sadly, for much of the end of the Cold War. But on the other hand, India's place in the world is closely circumscribed by a set of really very complex challenges, some domestic, but some also arise, arising from the rise of China, and it has to manage those effectively if it's to emerge as a leading power, and the leading power that Modi and many Indians and many others would like to see it. Thank you. Thank you all for being here, and thanks in particular to Dr. Uh, Nick Beasley for inviting me on this panel. Um, the focus of my talk will be specifically on India's urban future, because India's urban future is of vital importance to almost all aspects of development in India. The scale and speed of urbanization in India is almost globally unprecedented, and by 2030, that's in less than 15 years, about 40% of India's population, or nearly 600 million people, are expected to be living in Indian cities. And even this is a low estimate, because the term urban is very rigidly defined in Indian urban policy, fully excluding peri-urban areas. Right? So it only excludes very rigidly the areas that fall specifically under metropolitan precincts. And it's, it's the kind of growth that's occurring in these peri-urban regions and in these semi-rural regions, which are now being reclassified as urban, and it's specifically the urban growth that's happening here that I'd like to focus on. But even outside of these urban, uh, peri-urban growth areas, um, the growth of the urban population has honestly been truly exponential. By 2050, um, it's actually expected that north of 900 million people, almost a billion people, will be living in urban areas alone. And urban areas currently generate over 60% of the country's GDP and account for 90% of the government's tax revenues. Now, as I mentioned, most of the policy discussion in India um, uh, has generally been on its mega cities and also its million plus cities. You know, India is experiencing a ma massive spurt of growth in the number of million plus cities. And increases in urban population usually occur due to three reasons. One is, of course, the natural um, rise in population in urban areas. The second reason is migration from rural, of rural dwellers to urban areas. And the third, the third reason, which is the reason that I'm going to be focusing on, is as settlements expand and become more densely populated, these areas get reclassified from rural to urban. And all of these three um, uh, forces have been operational and have been at work to various degrees, but the reclassification from rural to urban has been ongoing for the last two decades, but has become particularly intense in the last few years. And um, 
especially under the current um, Modi government, this has actually come to the fore much more prominently because of the ambitious smart cities program. We, you know, the government has announced its intention to construct 100 smart cities, which only some of which will be created and built upon existing cities. Many of them will be new cities built upon farming land, agricultural land, um, and all of these, and, and also depend on, and they also grow from the commons. Now, the commons, agricultural land, farming land are the least protected kinds of land, right? So these, these um, land has always been regarded by urban planners as terra nullius, and they also disrupt urban livelihoods. Now, um, while the mega cities and million plus cities have always received lots of attention, like Delhi, Mumbai, Kolkata, etc., increasingly patterns of growth suggest that most of the world's as well as India's urban future will actually take place in the smaller cities and towns with populations of less than 500,000. And there has been comparatively very little discussion on this, on, on the growth of what, is, what are called conurbations, right? Conurbations are basically what I'm focusing on in this, in this talk here. Conurbations are urbanizing rural regions where the major metropolitan city or the megacity begins to extend beyond its metropolitan precincts and starts to cannibalize upon the surrounding rural regions. This can actually call for an entire policy change as the rural region gets classified as urban. Now, urban conurbations in India demonstrate that they truly steer the economic and social progress of the nation. In India, the latest census shows that over the past decade, there's been a massive increase in the number of urban conurbations. All of these major mega cities, as well as metropolitan cities, have started to cannibalize massively upon these um, reg uh, surrounding regions. And from about 5,000 conurbations in 2001, we now have almost 8,000 conurbations. In fact, the entire region between Delhi and Mumbai is regarded to be one massive urban mass. And uh, the reclassification, the, def the, the basis for reclassification is when there's a higher population density of more than 1,000 people per square kilometers. And as agricultural work becomes increasingly um, not dominant, right? And, but the reclassification creates particular problems, which no previous government has, has adequately been able to address. And the current um, government also shows itself to be... Um, um, has, has been rather inadequate in the response because the administrative machinery for urban areas seldom covers these rural regions. In the absence of institutional framework of a municipality, how are standard problems relating to streets, urban, other urban infrastructure such as electricity and water, sanitation, drainage, waste management, provision of basic services to be dealt with? These are already big problems in megacities and that are just being exported out now into the regions. How do policymakers and administrators incorporate the needs and requirements of these areas if they're not even officially recognized as urban? There are, of course, a lot of infrastructural issues to be discussed here, but what I would like to particularly focus on is on two major themes which are already highly operational in, in megacities and, and in uh, metropolitan in cities, uh, but are again emerging in particular ways in these conurbations. One is the problem of religious violence or fundamentalism, and the other one is ecological degradation. And these two intersect in very unique ways in urban conurbations. The conurbations offer a site where a specific nexus operates between religious violence, development, and environmental degradation, as exemplified by cow politics in India, around the narrative of the bovine in India as both sacred, but also an ecologically valuable commodity. 
Of course, um, prohibitions exist on the slaughter of, of cows, um, but India is also now the leading producer of, uh, the world's leading producer of beef, the leading producer of milk, and the top 10 producers of leather in Asia, all of which, which, which can be only sustained by the mass slaughter of cattle. And while, of course, the government claims that these are um, buffalo exports, the records, of imp the records of importing countries demonstrate that, that, that cow um, products are also being exported in large numbers. Cow protection and the prohibition of slaughter uh, has been mobilized to perpetuate the most hideous atrocities against Muslims and low-caste Hindus. And in 2016 alone, two Muslim women, a Muslim couple, four Dalit men, have been severely beaten by self-stated cow vigilantes for possessing cow beef or hide. And 90% of these, um, um, these um, atrocities were committed in semi-urban, peri-urban areas, which fall in the gray area of administrative machinery, such as Mandasore in Madhya Pradesh. Um, and four Dalit men who were beaten for skinning a cow in, in Una in Gujarat, which again falls in the growing conurbation area between Rajkot and Port Bandar. The conurbations are also large tracts of livestock production, farming of animals, but also slaughter. India is the largest global owner of livestock in the world, and it, it possesses about nearly 500 million um, livestock head, of which cattle alone constitute 200 million. Right? Environment, animal agriculture and its degradation of urbanizing rural hinterland has enormous implications for climate change as well as India's, um, as well as its sectarian and casteist politics. But global climate, in, climate interventions, as well as India's own climate interventions, has been intriguingly silent on this nexus between animal agriculture and its urban politics. Um, in addition to um, now, not only, as I've already mentioned, is planning infrastructure inadequate in these regions anyway, as regards its response to contributing to, develop, to the development of physical infrastructure, but urban governance per se has always been ill-equipped to address ethno-religious spatial tensions in its policymaking. Religion has almost no mention in any urban policy in India, even though it plays such a palpable role in constructing its politics, its spatial politics, etc., However, in strategically neglecting religion, urban governance actually stands to play a role in amplifying the vulnerabilities that particular populations may face as a result of, of this neglect. The gray spaces that emerge in the shadow spaces between formal and informal development, between urban and urban and rural, and the violence and the illegal transactions that therefore can be enacted in these spaces are in fact vital to support the formal economy in India. Um, in addition to these sectarian issues that get enacted in these urban conurbations, there is also major um, ecological uh, cost to the export of meat uh, from India, which itself is very worrying because India is a major exporter of not just beef but also other types of meat. Um, and one of the major concerns is the proliferation of slaughterhouses in regions that are reclassified as urban from rural, because the slaughterhouses in India are, are defined as an industrial activity. They're defined as an industrial activity because they are high-polluting industries. They fall under the red zone of industrial pollution, which is the top zone of industrial pollution, because there's almost no way of mitigating the complete effects of, of slaughtering. Um, however, so all of these urbanizing rural hinterlands and conurbations are now ma major product producers of, of uh, of pollution from slaughterhouses, and there are an enormous number of applications for industrial slaughterhouses that, that process 
in industry terms, anything up to 20,000 to 30,000 um, animals per day, which, which of course lead to almost unquantifiable levels of pollution. When a country exports meat, it doesn't just export meat, but also, of course, grain, water, um, calorific needs, etc. And water rights are not uncommon. Uh, combined with rapid urbanization, um, the states of Karnataka and Tamil Nadu, for example, are having, have been having enduring standoffs over the, over the sharing of a river. And uh, these, these sorts of battles are now getting um, played in urbanizing areas. Um, take home lessons for India very quickly. <laughs> um, one is, of course, a comprehensive governance for cross-state, cross-city models for the administration of conurbations need to, need to be developed. Right? Because it's very unclear as to which city is going to take responsibility or which state is going to take responsibility for these massively urbanizing hinterlands. So each city also has to, or each region also has to respond very accurately to its ecological realities. So far, governance in India has always been divided as urban or rural governance, but we need to develop a new sort of model of governance which can actually respond to, to these sorts of the requirements of these places. And of course, this, um, the whole debate with smart cities is, is problematic in this respect because it's a, it's a planning concept that supplies the demand rather than demand a supply. Um, and it's, uh, the blueprint, again, has been exported from the West. Uh, so of course, there is a call to reconceptualize smart cities in India more in terms of just cities or wise cities. The number two is India really seriously needs to rethink its position regarding animal agriculture, which has exponentially grown under the current regime. Though it's almost presented as a facile, uh, facile response to poverty alleviation, it is not an industry that the nation can actually afford to invest in without irrecoverable ecological costs. Right? The meta-narrative of cow protectionism really needs an intervention from an animal rights standpoint, I suggest, because that's the standpoint that it has never had. It's always been a sectarian and a casteist movement. And number three, to what extent is it possible to address religion in spatial policies and urban policies has always remained uncertain. And I don't really have an easy answer to give here either. And of course, religion is only one element of the mobilization of violence through differentiation in cities, and other elements include colonial legacies and policymaking, young and unemployed, educa uneducated young men, uh, the neoliberal and capitalist realities of industries such as cattle, and of course, the predominant uh, the deeper tensions predominantly between Hinduism and Islam per se, which has again been an ongoing uh, narrative. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick, and Latrobe Asia and the Australia India Institute. I'm Ian Wolford, and I coordinate the Hindi language program at Latrobe University, where I teach beginning through, through advanced levels of Hindi. And I always uh, feel the need to point out that, that um, Latrobe is one of only two universities in all of Australia that actually offers a, a course in in Hindi, uh, and, and there actually aren't any any universities that offer offer courses in, in any other Indian languages. So this is an unfortunate situation in, in some ways. What I'd like to do right now is convey something about language usage uh, in India, and just and just stress really one point, and and that is the the fact that most of what happens, a lot of what happens in India, simply doesn't happen in English, and then, and then a related point that the Australian education system from primary school through to the, the university level just doesn't meet the, the needs for, for an appropriate and, and multilingual engagement in, with India. And I'm often asked, I'm often asked by Australians and by Indians alike, why? 
would an Australian person want to learn Hindi? And often it's not asked as an actual question, but, but as an assumption that there, there isn't a good reason. So I'd like to just think about that situation from the Indian perspective and sort of just to jump to a conclusion. I wonder sometimes if it arises out of a failure within India to consider Hindi as a foreign language, to consider what it might be to convey something other than Indianness in Hindi. And also sort of a, a, a reluctance to acknowledge Hindi's foreign status, even for many within India itself. And, and this is actually an impediment for people in India who are trying to champion Hindi's cause in India and abroad. The failure to think about what it means to, to consider Hindi as a foreign language. So again, the two sort of main things I want to get across, English is not enough for deep engagement in India. Uh, and I know this is a point that I've actually had some very interesting disagreements with, with some people in this, this room, so I hope we can talk about it a bit more now. But just most of what happens in India, at least from, from my perspective, what I see in any realm in sport, media, Politics, religion, literature, conversations at the crossroad or just uh, gossip at coffee shops. This is happening in something other than English. And then just because, the second idea, just because India is multilingual, it's, it's famously multilingual, this is not a good enough reason for us to, to throw up our hands and give up on foreign language training. And I, I sort of wonder or hope, in fact, that attention to India's multilingualism could be a useful way to consider the very multilingual situation here in Australia or here in this this very room. So what I'll do is introduce three examples and I'll describe them now in case I, I run out of time. Uh, these are all from poetry and song. The first is a poem by a senior Hindi poet named Kedaranath Singh called Desh or Ghar, Country and, and Home, in which he considers his six or seven decades of questioning in his two mother tongues, in the, the Hindi language and, and Bhojpuri language. Um, and again, I know it can be hard to sort of remember these names without a PowerPoint, so you can remember his name is Kedarnath Singh, or you can just remember that he's a senior Hindi poet, who's a modern Hindi poet, he's on 82, he just turned 82 years old. The second example is a piece by the young Hindi poet Shubham Shri, uh, she's in her 20s now, and she, she's written an award-winning Hindi poem titled Poetry Management, Poetry Management, and it caused major waves in the Hindi, Hindi literary circles a few months ago. Uh, many of them were howls of protest that this poem has, has won an award. It's not written in, in Hindi, the critics said, or it's not written in the kind of Hindi that we should be writing poetry in. And I, I bring up her poem as an example of... of a relationship between Hindi and English, and also the raises the question of, of, of how efforts of the Hindi literary or language establishment might hinder the promotion of Hindi. So the first example will be from the senior poet, Kedarnath Singh, the second from uh, a young woman, Shubham Shri, her poem, Poetry Management, and the third example is a satirical song from the comedy group, Esi Tesi, Democracy, written by Warren Grover, Sanjay Rora, and Rahul Ram, and their song, this is just from about a year ago, Mere Samne Wali Sarhat Pe, is a satirical love song of sorts to the India-Pakistan uh, relationship, and it went quite viral on social media and was greeted by musical video response from an officer in the Pakistani military. There's just one more illustration of the daily creativity in Hindi and other related languages. And, and what I really want to stress, so this is creativity with international consequence. It, it illustrates the reality of Hindi, or rather a Hindi-Urdu continuum as a lingua franca across the South Asia region. And this is a language of diplomacy conducted on, in this case, a person-to-person -person level by musicians 
comedians and, and, and soldiers and shared by millions across social media. So the first example from Gaither Not Singh. Again, India is a multilingual country. The constitution lists some 22 languages given official uh, status. You can talk to other linguists and they'll say there's hundreds more. Some will say there's thousands more. Uh, many of you know here that there's no official national language of India. Hindi and English are both the official languages of the, of the Union government. Uh, states do have official languages, many of them picked from those 22 languages listed in the Constitution. So, and this, and Kedar Nath Singh, one of the most prominent poets writing in Hindi, uh, his most recent collection, his home called Desh or Ghar, Country or Home, elaborates on this situation. He has the, the home, home to him is Bhojpuri, the language of, of eastern Uttar Pradesh, where he grew up, but Desh, the country, that is Hindi. Hindi and Bhojpuri, he says. One, Hindi is the country, Bhojpuri is my home. And I love both of them, he says. He says, Hindi mera desh hai, Bhojpuri mera ghar. Hindi is my country, Bhojpuri is my home. Ghar se nikalta hun to chala jata hun desh mein. When, I, when I, we exit the home, we, we enter the country. And when we, we take leave of the country, we come back to the home. Desh se chutti milti hai, to lot aata hun ghar. This is his idea he sets up, this metaphor. And he ends by saying that I love, I love both of them. I love both of them. But look at my trouble that for the last 60 years I've been looking for one in the other. I love both of them. And look at my trouble that for the last 60 years I've been looking for one in the other. So Bhojpuri and Hindi are both parts of his identity. Right? This is something that people in India understand, I think, often intrinsically. It's a very multilingual mindset there. Bhojpuri is a language he grew up in. And, and uh, Hindi is the language for him. It's also his mother tongue, the language he learned at school. A child, especially in a rural area, will grow up maybe in a language like Bhojpuri, then he or she will, will enter school and start learning Hindi. And there are different sort of attitudes or regional language like Bhojpuri, but one thing that often happens in the rural areas, this child will get to school, they're five or six years old, and they're told that, no, your mother tongue is Hindi. Your mother tongue is Hindi, and this language that you've spoken at home is, is a somewhat corrupted version of Hindi. This is this doesn't really have basis in linguistic fact, but it's a feeling people sort of have. It's why we get this sort of odd situation in India where a lot of native Hindi speakers will say, oh, but my Hindi isn't so good, even though they're absolutely fluent in the, in the uh, language. Um, and if I could generalize a bit more about Hindi's status in India, um, as a foreign language, I mean, when a, a, a student from Tamil Nadu in the south, or Kerala, a Malayalam speaker, a Tamil speaker, these languages not related to Hindi, uh, they don't get so much credit for learning Hindi, but it is very much a foreign language for, for many people there, although it's just sort of assumed that they should they should know it. And I've, I always just feel if there was just a, a bigger acknowledgement in India of Hindi, which is, is spoken certainly across the north and increasingly in the south through, uh, through education initiatives, is actually a foreign language for many people that actually would actually help in its promotion, which is why I find a, a poem like Kedar Nath Singh's, this, this senior poet, so helpful because, because it, this idea of home and country, we love both, we love both, but the two are not interchangeable, they're not the same. The second example, Shubham Shri's uh, poem, Poetry Management. Uh, so while Kedarnath's, Kedarnath's poem is written in standard Hindi and conforms to conventions of modern Hindi poetry, hers does not. It does not at all. The opening lines, Kavita likna bogus kaam hai re ekdam. The Kavita, it's poetry, it's, it's absolute, you heard the word bogus. It's just bogus. Why do we even do this? It's absolutely useless. And, and, and some poets took quite offense this and thought she was actually attacking poetry, but it's quite a long poem. Anyone, any poet who's writing a long poem obviously doesn't really think poetry is paltu. 
is useless. They don't. Um, and, and, but there's a lot of English words in this, and they got very upset with that. And I can, I can report that by working this with some of my advanced Hindi students, this is not an English poem. They had a really hard time sort of understanding what was going in this. Um, the second criticism that it's not poetry at all, that it fails to conform to any definition of Hindi poetry. People say it's just a meaning meaningless collection of, of colloquial phrases. I, sh I should remember just, if anyone wants to look this up, uh, my colleague Daisy Rockwell in, in the United States has done a very good translation of, of her poem you can find online. If you just Google Daisy Rockwell Poetry Management or just Daisy Poetry Management would probably do it and you can get a very nice translation of Shubham, Shubhamji's uh, poem. So she writes, yeah, poetry is pointless, but then she proceeds to imagine an alternate world where we give poetry as much status as the MBA, as business. So in, in, in this world, the stock markets rise and fall depending on poetry. If some leftist poet writes a, a poem critiquing capitalism, the, the, everyone freaks out, the markets fall, and the finance minister has to reassure small investors that don't worry, everything's going to be fine. The prime minister embarks on multi-day international poetry tours. The principal tension between India and Pakistan isn't Kashmir, it's over who gets to lay claim to pre-partition poets and authors. Uh, the students burn effigies of university vice-chancellors in protest of caste reservation policies in the PA. The poetry aptitude test, and young children fashion their hairstyles after famous poets and write school essays on how I want to grow up to be the nation. CPO, the chief poetry officer. So such a publicized intrusion, though, of a young, bold, and yes, a, a female poetic voice into the Hindi literary uh, sphere just caused a, a lot of ruffles. It, it upset people, ruffled a lot of feathers, and I think we could all here imagine. I see I've got two minutes left, Nick, so I'll be able to do this just fine. Uh, you can sort of imagine, though, the arguments that someone like me would make and say, we, you know, this is the way language is spoken on the ground, and there's nothing wrong in, in a poem doing this. Um, the last example, briefly, Mere Samne Wali a satirical song by this group, Essi Democracy. Meri samne wale sarhad pe keta hai dushman, kehta hai dushman rehta hai, par ghor se dekha jab usko, wo to mere jaisa dikhta hai. So we've got this border between India and Pakistan, but when I look at the so-called enemy over there, I see he looks just like me. But this isn't just sort of a, a, a seeing the, the, the world through you know, rose-colored glasses thing. They end up doing a very biting critique of both India and Pakistan. I'll give, uh, following on, on, on Yamni, some of your things, one line. Waha, in Pakistan, blasphemy ka funda hai, yaha gaiko koini takarai. So over there, blasphemy is all the rage. People upset about that. Over here, we're all upset about not herding cows over there. Um, over there, the mullahs ban YouTube. Over here, the pundits ban kissing in the streets. This is a kind of, so this kind of thing, so very sort of equal criticism in both. And it went absolutely viral on social media. People loved it. Um, and when I was in Bombay, I went to see their show. And by that time, all these young people sort of singing along with it. They enjoyed it very much. And a Pakistani military uh, army officer, Muhammad Hassan Miraj, wrote his own satire piece as an answer to the Indian version. And while well, the Indian version ends with, bas do family ki chandi hai, wahan bhutto hai, yahan gandhi hai. So it's, uh, the, 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 there's two families ruling in both places over there. It's just the bhutto family over here. It's the gandhi family. We're just, uh, we're just sort of at the mercy of both of them. The Pakistani version, though, declares 
कब तक बंदूक बनाए गए अब बच्चों को कुछ ज्ञान भी दे न भुट्टो का न गांधी का ये तेरा मेरा फंडा है सो वो नॉट हाउ लॉन्ग वी ने कीप जस्ट मिलिट्राइजिंग अर सेल्स इट्स नॉट अप द गांधी इट्स नॉट द भुट्टो फैमिली इट्स अप टू अस दिस इज वट ही सेज सो दिस इज इट्स अ वेरी अफेक्शनेट सुड लव सॉन्ग ऑफ सोर्ट्स बींग thrown across this 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 border um and what i would just want to say is uh, well there are a couple of things but one point out that this isn't a language this isn't in the standard hindi right this isn't the colloquial language one that is completely understood in pakistan completely understood in india if we allow this language to grow it's very clearly a language of of diplomacy and then nick uh, bisley or ian hall would probably describe this as an example of some kind of soft diplomacy but of course there's nothing soft about satire it's biting and when it's hard and we have the case of uh, soldiers and comedians lobbing these affections across one of the most militarized borders in the world um this is this is a conversation which should be listening to uh if for no other reason that's quite enjoyable this is skilled artistry but again it's artistry with consequence so again i just bring up those three examples to point out three sort of very different ways from art and from song to show how english might not be enough to figure out what's going i mean i i only looked at one language right there's 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 many many others but not enough to a deep engagement with with india and just just to point out that just because india is is as multilingual as it is that's not a good enough reason for us to throw up our hands and not even try and do anything here to listen to what's going on in india thank you very much thank you as as you will see when when thinking about a country as large and as diverse as india with three panelists and 10 to 12 minutes each we had to give them each a small part of the elephant but i think you've seen this the richness and possibilities we now have until 7:30 uh to kick these ideas around um so if you could indicate in the usual way um that you'd like to ask a question please keep your question short or your comment short um and there's a mic there are microphones going around the room and we're recording it so please wait until you get the microphone if as people are going catch my eye generally what happens with these things is we start to questions start looking like he throw at peak hour and they start lining up in the air uh and I'll do the best we can to get through everyone but um who would like to commence proceedings at the back at the yeah. right there yep yeah I'll go a little quick so I just have one question from the panelists because what I understood from your discussion I was thinking about that you know what actually world wants from India because there's you know, people people are really really you know enthusiastic about what what is india and how is it going and india we want india to be a superpower but what actually really want you want india to be multicultural but you want india to be promoting hindi you want india to be you know as diverse and you know accepting and then you want india to be china like or something a superpower or something you never analyze china that way so what actually world's perception of india is as a superpower what you want in a specific i mean obviously you want many things but in a priority what okay what does the world want from india and i i suspect we'll get at least three different views so ian <laughs> i'm not sure i can speak for the world um as one of 6 billion and growing number of people what does the world want from india 
I think, I mean, there's a number of different levels on which you can answer that question. I mean, I think, you know, what, what do... And there are different answers depending on where, who you're talking to. What do I want from India? I want to see a successful India. I want to see a richer India. I want to see an India in which people live fulfilled lives and have jobs and are educated and are able to, you know, cultivate all of those wonderful cultural gifts, that are, those are cultural inheritances that, that Ian has been talking about as well. So that's what I want from India. States want other, you know, different different things. I mean, the United States wants from India, in, in diplomatic terms, it wants India to be strong and it wants it to be robust. Uh, I don't. It knows that it's not going to be a peer competitor to China for a hundred years. Okay, unless something happens. So it knows all those things. But different. But whether whether India wants that is a question. Is another is an open question, and it's a question that's being actively debated. And my interest really is is in trying to work out what those debates, you know, what's happening in those debates, what the arguments are, and who might win out in the end and, and come up with a convincing vision of India uh, that takes us beyond just leading power into leading power, leading where, and for what, and how. Those are the kinds of interesting questions that I want to ask. All right, I'm going to answer this um, really briefly, but I think what the world wants from India and what certainly India should want for itself is a, is a serious re-examination of its population policies because I think in the next 10 years, even, even way sooner, we are going to be overtaking China uh, as the largest nation in the world. I think it's going to happen in the next... I think, I think, I think the projected, the conservative, um, frightening estimates are actually really close in the next three to five years, possibly, that we're going to be exceeding China's population. And, of course, it's placing massive pressures on extremely overstressed regions, governance, infrastructure, resources, and I think a, a serious, a really serious re-examination of its population policies is vital. Thanks. Thank you for your question. I just wanted to clarify one thing because you said that I want India to promote Hindi, and I just sort of, I just want to make it clear that I, I do not want that. <laughs> this is I don't have a personal stake in this, and actually I work in Mahathali Bhojpuri languages, and I would love if if you know I study Hindi because I love poetry and I love song, but I have the greatest sympathy for parents who desperately want to to get their their children educated in English medium school because they see this as the way ahead. And, and frankly, I think any individual person's choices is is much more important than any sort of broader language policy issues. But but in terms of what the world wants from India, I don't know, but I know it's a, and what I think of it is our duty to India, or our duty to people, or our duty just to. I think as an educator, I mean, we need to do what we can to educate people so they acknowledge just the basic humanity of, of, of anyone else. I mean, that's, that's where, where I start. It's not that I expect anything from India, and, and uh, I think Yamini and, and Ian can speak better in terms of international relations, the answer to your question. Okay, the next one is just here at the front right and then over there. Oh, hi. Um, my name is Melissa. Um, I'm studying Masters of policy at Deakin University. I'm an alumni of La Trobe University and um, I work in the area of agriculture and pesticide regulation. So I'm really interested in um, the discussion around rezoning of rural land and have great concern over population and feeding the world. Um, I'm wondering, uh, first of all, uh, Australia as a developed country and even um, the EU have its challenges as far as protection of agricultural productive land against urbanisation. And I'm wondering how you see um, 
where India is looking to, to learn about policy development in this area. Um, I'm also interested in what you had to say as far as um, pollution of um, agricultural space into, um, or industrial, I should say, industrialised areas into urbanised areas. I was disappointed to hear about this because I've been learning about the impact that the Bhopal disaster had on policy deve development globally. And I guess I wonder what India has learnt from that historically because I would have thought it would be a lot because the world has learnt from that as well. Um, so in terms of where India is, um, I mean, in terms of its urban policy and where India is looking to sort of, you know, model itself on or, or, or develop its own models, currently there's almost no discussion of how to address the reclassification of um, regions which are which were rural and now becoming urban. The only definition that exists for, for this reclassification is more than 1,000 people living per square kilometre. Um, in terms of who is going to be catering to these um, populations and regions, um, there's almost been no discussion because the, the current discussion on, on planning is has been hijacked substantially by the smart cities narrative. It is not also, um, the, uh, other narratives of, of claims to land also operate in these rural regions, which will conflict with a, with a well thought through urban policy. Like for example, a lot of these um, lands also fall, are also classified as um, uh, protected land for the scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. Now, now like it's very similar to the protective um, um, legislations that operate for Aboriginal people, for example, and for their lands. So these lands are, are reserved for, for their purposes, um, and it's constitutionally incorrect to utilise this land and for any other purpose other than what, is, what it's originally reserved for. But as these lands are also urbanising, it's going to come very strongly into conflict, and these are going to be highly complicated, highly fraught sorts of conversations which are currently being avoided. They're not really being had at the moment. So that's, that's a real concern. Sorry, I didn't catch your second question fully, to be honest. Oh, around um, the industrial pollution yeah. and urban areas The, the, one of the most vital industrial activities that is happening in these reclassified areas are, is slaughtering, right? It's not just um, licensed formal slaughtering. Like, of course, in India, the, the informal economy is almost two or three times as large as the, as the formal economy. Um, there are very few slaughterhouses which are, which are licensed. There are only about 300 slaughterhouses in India which are licensed. And all of the others are hundreds and thousands and thousands of illegal unlicensed slaughterhouses, right, which are entirely unregulated. But even when it comes to licensed slaughterhouses, there's almost no pollution norms that are being followed. Like, for example, according to global standards of slaughtering, a slaughterhouse must be rested, so to speak, every seven years, in, for two years, in order, in order for the ecological, the surrounding ecology to regenerate, but also to allow the animal population to, to regrow again, right? That has never happened in India. 
Not a single licensed formal slaughterhouse has ever shut down for any length of time, ever. So it has absolutely never happened. And the major source of pollutant, which um, even countries in the West have, are actually struggling to dispose of sustainably is blood, because blood is what causes diseases and parasites and pollution, et cetera, in addition to, of course, a massive drain on water resources. Right? So this has almost entirely escaped notice, and it's, it's not being looked at because, in a way, there is an investment to not look at it. It's an investment to, to turn a blind eye because you know, India is now the largest exporter of beef. But just to add to that very briefly, um, this, what this also means is there is a scale of slaughtering that happens in India, right? Indian meat is priced at about 40% of Australian, American, and European meat. Now, what this means is that for India to be competitive with Australia, which is to say to make the same amount of money, we need to slaughter two to three times as many animals as well, which basically means enormous pollution costs and degradation. All right, just here, um, got one there, 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 there. So a little cue yeah, for me, so catch my I'm Hima Sharda. I have special interest in education. I was ex-director of South Asia Relations at the University of Western Australia. And to me, the biggest challenge in front of India is educating India and skilling India. These are the two challenges if somehow we can work on and focus on half of the other problems will go. Uh, I heard from the pa panel a lot of things which are so appreciate. I'm appreciative of all your comments. But I think some uh, more focus uh, in discussion on three things that affect me personally when I go to India to see corruption, inefficiency and poor state governance and lack of education, and more than education, is the lack of quality in education. So these are the challenges which I personally pay a lot of attention to, and I also would like that as between Australia and India, in our relations, our education and skilling India gets much more focus than anything else. Recruiting international students and just thinking that as a strategy is not enough, that is not a relationship, that's a business, that's a commercial activity. A strate strategic partnerships in the area of food and water security, resource management, urban uh, issues, and um, health issues, these are the things that are going to really create the India we are all looking forward to see in the future. Thank you. Yeah, no, I. I would, I would just say I absolutely agree with, with everything you're saying, and, and, and uh, obviously, uh, as an educator, I, I absolutely agree. And, and, and when you talk about strategic partnerships, these are things universities should absolutely be doing. And, and, and as I'm sure you probably feel the same way when you're in India and you see especially young people, university-aged people, there's so much potential. There's so much potential there in people, and uh, it's, it's, all, it's, it's very, um, it's sort of amazing to see uh, it's it's uh, it's amazing to see sometimes. So so any way to harness on that. And again, I, I'm sure you could probably come up with better examples than I could, of just the number of of people working in India doing exactly what you're you're just saying. So so it's not even that we need to reinvent or come up with things, but just find out who's doing what on the ground and and promote that a lot of the way. That's why I really like you brought strategic partnerships because we should partner with people who are already having success on the ground across India. So I really appreciate that. I mean, comment that you have. Okay, so in the front, uh, if I may, I would like to ask two questions. Uh, one, uh, the lady touched on: What is the future of corruption in India? 
And question, uh, second question is uh, flowing from this gentleman's uh, uh, statements. Uh, uh, India is uh, what uh, former Yugoslavia used to be. And uh, my understanding is that President Tito and Jawaharlal Nehru both uh, devised the strategy of uniting India like uniting uh, uh, former Yugoslavia and with the separatist movements in India, uh, what is going to happen to the Indian Federation? Two really small questions there. <laughs> the growth industry of corruption and India as Yugoslavia. Um, Ian, I might get you to kick that one off. <laughs> I'm perhaps I'm not going to speak to the issue of corruption. I mean. You know, it's it's clearly endemic in some areas, and then it's and and so you know, I said the future of corruption, future for corruption. This is two separate, slightly different questions, aren't they? Uh, I think corruption has a pretty good future at the moment um, in India, and so so that's what I would I would say. So look um, on the on the on the challenge of keeping India together. Uh, yes, I mean this has obviously been an enormous problem right the way through India's post-colonial history. The, the challenge has been to to maintain India's unity. And there's been a number of different strategies that have been adopted to do that, you know, principally, essentially buying off uh, groups, uh, linguistic groups primarily, with their own states once they've pushed it to a, to a point where, they, where it becomes obvious that that needs to happen in order to, to prevent an insurgency or significant civil disobedience and so on and so forth, significant civil unrest. But I think we kind of, we, I think actually that India is, is beyond that kind of post-colonial consolidation phase. Uh, and so, and as a really complicated multi-ethnic, multilingual, multicultural society, um, actually India is hanging together reasonably well in a way that perhaps um, some other states in similar situations aren't. And that's notwithstanding the issues to do with, with Kashmir and issues up in the northeast and so on and so forth, which are still significant issues. But I think India's kind of negotiated its way past those very difficult stages that right the way through into the into the nineteen eighties. And if we look back over India's postcolonial history, actually the last really major threat to India's territorial integrity was that Punjab insurgency in the nineteen eighties. And once that was dealt with, I went go into that issue, uh, that after that, actually, India's been in a reasonable position. But anything can change. There we go. Hedging, there's the academic hedging of bets. We've got Ravi here and then a, a range over here. So, I think India, as you outlined, has many internal challenges and perhaps one or two external challenges. The two external challenges, you already know what they are, and they don't want India to stay as one country. In effect, the Chinese scholars often write in their controlled press that India will break up into 33 different uh, countries over time. The internal challenges are hard to tackle with the current political system that India has. The Indian political system is based, it, it survives on creating vote banks. And, and that, is, that is the key challenge. So you cannot make a policy, you can't make a flyover as a public-private partnership and charge toll for it because a couple of idiots will get together and gather 200 people and sit and block it. In no other country will that be tolerated. So the Indian challenges, internal challenges, 
uh, are a result of India's current political system. And as some would say, they're only two years old, they are not. The problems in India with the Dalits and so on and so forth did not start with the Modi's election. Uh, these, these problems are centuries old, some of them, okay? So uh, Modi has become a lightning rod which attracts all sorts of criticisms, but in reality, it's the political system which is wrong, and it will, at some point in time, be self-correcting. There will be a correction. There will be, hopefully, a revolution which takes the current system away and replaces it with the most effective system. Well, the aspiration of revolution. <laughs> I... I I, I, all I would say is I ho it's just amazing here everyone talk about the, the different problems there are. I hope, Ravi, sir, if that revolution does happen, that it happens. I hope it starts with education, though, if, if that's where it's... I, I just... Um, and, well, yes. Uh, but, but, I, but I hope that's where it would start, at least. And, and uh, it's interesting just listening to these different views about where the actual problem lies. Does it lie in... Does it lie with terrorists? Does it lie within people within who are calling for the breakup, supposedly calling for the break of the of, of the, the union? I mean, these are all these sort of different ideas flying around. And I would just, like I said, I hope I hope if that revolution. I th I, f I agree with you that if we start with education, some of these problems would f not fix themselves, but there would be people to fix them. But. Are you saying that metamorphosis hasn't happened yet, or it's happening? Okay, I, I won't agree with you on that ever because I, I don't look. I don't want that day to come. No. All right. On that. On that difference of opinions at the back. Yes. I'm just wondering if the panel could speak um, about the future of Indian-Australian FTA, the free trade agreement, oh, and whether the like potentially Pauline Hanson's sort of xenophobic uh, grouping in the Senate could try to block any sort of deepening of trade relationships between India and Australia? Uh, the, the trade agreement that broke even Andrew Robb's spirit. <laughs> uh, I guess there's two issues. One is the trade agreement is what are the prospects of it and the other is if it, let's assume one happens then what are the prospects of it being scuppered by Australian domestic politics? Your starter for ten. <laughs> I, th I think, you know, we've seen this. So the, the current Australian High Commissioner, Arinda Sidhu, went out to, to New Delhi. Uh, she's a trade negotiator by, tr by trade, if you like. Sorry to forgive the pun. And, uh, and that's what she does, and she's extremely good at it. Uh, and she was, she, she, her top priority, I've heard this from her, was to, to conclude this agreement. Um, so I think on Australia's part, there's diplomatic uh, weight behind this. How it sits in the in the number in the priorities that the MEA has in New Delhi is another question. For understandable reasons, this might not sit at the top of the inbox um, because there are so many other issues that need to be dealt with by, by the MEA. On the domestic p political side of things, I would sincerely hope that this there will be bipartisan agreement on an FTA with India between the Labour Party and the Liberals. That would, that would mean that, that any kind of possible nativist, you know, uh, kind of stuff from Pauline Hanson or anybody else in the, in the Senate would be negated as a consequence. And this is just so important to Australia and to India and to the bilateral relationship that one would hope that there was bilateral agreement. All right. Um, the front... Sorry, so the front here, a woman in the black... 
shirt about three seats in. Just hit, pop, pop your hand up. Thanks. Your third. Um, I was just wondering how you think the realisation of the potential of India's women and girls might impact on the realisation of India as a whole? Okay, whilst you're pondering... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously what you've asked is a hugely important question. Again, it's one that's being asked by women and men within India. It's not one I can speak to much more than just saying things like in Bihar, where I work, which traditionally has very low indicators for status of women, especially in education, for example, uh, the, the enrollment rates of girls drop off as you go by the time you got to, the, this is 10 years ago, I, when I did look at school records, by the time year six, year seven, there were no girls in, in school, and that's changed quite a, quite a bit now. So, so without sort of extrapolating what the result might be, although there certainly surely would be good, I would just say that there, again, there are, there are people in India, so many people with this exact concern on their mind and doing everything they can to, to, to address it, to increase women's involvement. And uh, so, so I definitely can say that, but does anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in saying, in saying that, I think there's also certainly a very, very strong conservative right wing um, moment and narrative that's going on, which is trying not just to repress a number of women's freedoms in public spaces uh, through social censorship, through political censorship, etc., um, more broadly in society as well, but certainly women are feeling a massive backlash of it. Uh, in recent times, I think violence against women in public spaces has received an enormous amount of attention, first because of the New Delhi gang rape in 2012, and also the Badawan twin rapes um, that, in, that happened, in the, again, in a conurbation in a rural, uh, rural, urbanizing rural area. So I think these sorts of um, so one of the there is there is certainly a public sort of demonstration of, of violence which has received a lot of attention and there's also a narrative as I said of censorship, but I think in response to that what is happening is that the there is some sort of an emerging women's movement advocacy that is re-emerging in a way you know it's it's very it's 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 impossible to say that it was ever dormant but it is sort of re-emerging and it's re-emerging in places where it previously hadn't really articulated any of its concerns such as for example feminist planning or feminist urban planning right because and it's really important because india is such a rapidly urbanizing country right and there's almost been absolutely no mention of gender dimensions of this development that the fact that this development, which is probably the meta-development that's occurring in India, is gendered, it's extremely gendered, spatial politics is gendered, and it is gendered for women of different castes, different religions, they all have difficulties and different vulnerabilities in accessing space, accessing infrastructure, accessing opportunities, accessing mobilities, and all of these things are, of course, um, directly inform the way, you know, the way that they, they are able to access opportunities and growth for themselves. So this is a major area where interventions and feminist analysis critiques are beginning to, to emerge very strongly. And um, yeah, so I, th I think that's a, that's a positive, very, very positive outgrowth. Right, the back right there, on my right. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my question is, um, uh, India has a history uh, which is very passive. Uh, we have been a very non-aggressive, very pacifist nation over since um, many, many years, over 500 uh, years. Uh, the recent uh, 
the issues with U.S. and the West uh, started soon after 1971 when we intervened in East Pakistan. And uh, President Nixon and the, uh, the Secretary of State Kissinger had some very tough words for Indian uh, politics. Now the question, now the point is, uh, increasingly the views which we see in, uh, especially in the Western media, comes from Western experts. Do we actually know what the 1,280 million Indians think? Because issues like women's rights, let's not forget that India had four union ministers way back in 1947. The issues with Dalits is not one or two years old. This has been there for the last two centuries. The opinions which I find, are they, what, what is the platform based, what is the logic of having these opinions that India needs to uh, liberalize women's rights? No, India has women's rights. India has very strong women's rights. Uh, uh, for example, uh, politics, for example, science and technology. So my question is, when we come to opinions such as this, what is the logic of it? How do we come up with these opinions? Thank you. I, I don't, I mean, for me though, I take my cue I mean, you're right, there's gonna be a diversity of opinion within India, but just to take the issue of women's rights, and you, you make a very good case for how India has been progressive uh, for decades in certain spheres, uh, and, and no one could argue with the facts that you brought out. I think I would take my cue from the fact that obviously there's a diversity of opinion on the ground in India, and there are women and, and, and men working in India who, who, who don't agree that, that uh, who, who do think that there needs to be some kind of uh, movement for, for women's rights, and, and I, I myself would, would certainly not want to say anything to, to say they're, they're wrong at all, but does anyone else want to add to that? Um, I just wanted to very briefly add to that, which is, you know, I mean, of course, there is formal legislations and constitutional protections for women's rights, right. you know, that, that's, that's very clear. India has had that from the birth of its constitution. Um, and uh, th there, is a, there is a major, and, you know, feminists have interrogated this for a long time, saying that we have these protections and how come we haven't been able to actually access them and make use of them? And, you know, um, why hasn't it been much more powerful operational operationally on the ground. And, I, and, and one of the conclusions that they keep coming to is the fact that social change has been very slow. You know, there are legislative changes, but social change, corresponding social change has been extremely slow. Uh, we still operate in a very, very patriarchal setup. And there has been really very, very little community development efforts mobilized to address social change that can actually take advantage of legislative measures that are, that are, that are available. So I think there's a very strong disparity, and you're very correct in pointing that out. Um, but there has always been this tension about social change being very, very slow in, in partaking of these opportunities. And, and India, India would not be the only country in the world in which there is a gap between no, formal rights and substantive no. justice. No. I'm sorry, we're just going to sorry, we're just going to move on to the next question. We've brought a bit of a queue and are running short on time. So, uh, I was just wondering um, how the arms race in Asia and India's almost forced military build-up with submarines, notably. Uh, in reaction to China's increased activities in the Indian Ocean, how that might complicate things, how, how this evolving security situation might affect India's economic and diplomatic circumstances. 
India is the reluctant submarine purchaser. So there's two dimensions to this. I mean, there's the nuclear arms race and then there's the conventional arms race. Or they're not really arms races. The one thing to point out about the nuclear side of things is that in South Asia, and specifically with India, India's nuclear weapons program is the slowest developing program by quite a long way. If we think about the, how long it took for the Americans or the Soviets to move to getting an intercontinental ballistic missile and a weapon to put on the top of it, it took them a decade. Uh, it's taken India significantly longer. For good reasons, I think. The good reason is, and I'm not going to go into criticisms of the scientific side, other people do that all the time. The good reason is that actually this is a slow-paced development for a specific reason, because it shows restraint. So it's a type of, it's a way of balancing and saying, on the one hand, we have a weapon, but on the other hand, we we're not racing to develop you know, thousands of weapons and particular delivery systems and so on and so forth. So it's actually a, it's actually a kind of a way of, of demonstrating that you're controlling your, your behaviour and you're showing restraint, and you're not behaving as others might do in moving very, very fast towards acquiring these things. So it indicates what you think about the threat. It indicates the way you know your behaviour is restrained and so on and so forth. So that's the one side of things. On the conventional side of things, if you go back to the 1980s, there are Defence Department reports in Australia that say that India is going to build up its navy and we should be really worried about this because they'll dominate the Indian Ocean. The interesting thing about the, the commentary about India is that that's all dropped away okay, in, in the West. In, in places like Australia. But the important thing to recognise on the, on the conventional side of things is that, again, this is very slow progress, much slower progress than I think a lot of us would like to see in modernisation. There are huge gaps, huge capability gaps in the, across the Indian military. And, and the, in, in defensive systems, forget about offensive systems. Think about things like early warning radars and missile systems to deal with incoming aircraft and so on. These are all obsolete straightforwardly. So there are huge gaps. This is slow-moving stuff. The figures are big. The numbers of aircraft and so on are huge. But we've got to put them in perspective in terms of a military that is, needs probably 25 years at current pace, if not more, to modernise to a level, to a reasonable level. And, and it should, should be said also that there is, no, there is not yet an actual arms race in any part of Asia. There's military modernisation, but there isn't a race dynamic as yet. So it's Sophie, I think, in the middle, isn't it? Um, my question is mainly for Ian Hall. Um, I'm just wondering what you think are the prospects of further defence cooperation between India, the US, Japan and Australia? And would such a grouping serve India's interests uh, in relation to the rise of China and the regional power shifts? So the, the short answer to all of that is it's already happening um, on multiple different levels, but not necessarily in a kind of overtly coordinated way. So we, you know, the, the, the days of a, of a quadrilateral, of a kind of an arrangement in which all four states operate uh, together and collaborate on what they're doing in an overt and obvious way have gone, and they're probably not going to come back for some time. But on bilateral and trilateral links... There are all kinds of things that are going on in the background. And today you've got, um, to, um, you've got Parikar, the Indian Defence Minister, talking to Ash Carter. They've signed a logistics agreement, for example. So this is just one example of the, of the little building blocks being put in place for a deeper and deeper and deeper defence cooperation across these bilateral relationships. And as those bilateral relationships get stronger, so too do the... To the, to the other elements of the relationship. So we're, never, we're not going to see a formal, anything like a formal alliance, but we are seeing prog pro progress made 
in, in deeper and deeper cooperation. All right, we have time for one last one, which I think the gentleman right at the back there. We'll do a little pass the parcel. We spoke about um, rapid urbanisation, and in other countries we've seen that's turned into um, a rise of the middle class, but we don't seem to see that in India. The disparity seems to be getting sort of greater and greater. Um, I'm a businessman who's been tasked with entering the Indian market, and I'm waiting for that middle class to rise, and I'm not too sure when that's going to happen. How patient should we be for the emergence of India's middle class? Because it could be very, very large. Any takers? This is what we keep hearing, right? That there's this emerging middle class that's going to suddenly appear and that's going to change everything. So, so but I, I don't know how to speak to it. All I, I, we certainly are told to keep waiting for it. So. <laughs> there we The audience has spoken. Yeah, I think it just depends on who you're, like, uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I do my work in, in Bihar, right? I work in Purnia, Jilla, and, and people don't say that there. It, it just isn't, I, I just don't know. But, but Yamini, you might be able to speak to it better from, from the urbanization perspective. I, I just don't know. I think given the size and scale of India and given that you know, India and China together account for such a substantial proportion of the world's population, I think it is useful now to think about class beyond, beyond national boundaries. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, if you were to look at in India's, you know, the broad spectrum of India's middle class, which is of course highly, um, highly diverse, a lot of them by global standards would probably classify as working class or as you know, lower middle class, et cetera. So I think there is a need, just because of the scale of these, the populations of these countries, and I assume I can speak, say the same for China as well, there is a need to conceptualize of class, I think, in, 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 a, in a highly globalized world, possibly beyond national boundaries at this point. Mm. Can I just say one thing on that as well? Remember that India's middle class isn't necessarily in India. And that's a really important point. And they're also transferring backwards and forwards from India to the United States, to Australia, to other places, Singapore, the Gulf, and so on. Um, you know, India's middle class is moving backwards and forwards. It's now a global you know, uh, middle class that is not necessarily, you don't have to go to them. They are coming here, they're coming to lots of other places, and then they're going backwards and forwards. So it's a, it's a much more complex picture, I think, than just a, a middle class growing up in one place to which you have to go in and access them. Um, and, you know, accessing that middle class here leads back mm. quite quickly back into, into India itself. All right, we are out of time. Um, events like this, uh, as you can appreciate, are very much a collaborative endeavour, uh, and I'd like to extend my thanks to the Latrobe Asia team and in particular to our administrative generalissimo, or generalissima, uh, Diana Hederich, for her always excellent work in making today uh, a great success. I'd also like to thank uh, the staff here at the State Library of Victoria for all of their wonderful support um, that we receive whenever we hold events in this uh, fantastic space. Um, we're always pleased to work with the Australia India Institute and particularly grateful to Cog and Simone for their help. Uh, I'd like particularly to underline my gratitude to Matt Smith, La Trobe Asia's digital guru whose idea this series was. Uh, and whose creative drive keeps the Latrobe Asia project motoring along. Um, finally, I'd especially like to thank our panellists who have taken time out of their very packed diaries. Um, you might be interested to know that Yamini is in fact going straight to the airport from today uh, to participate in this evening's program. So please join me in expressing this gratitude in whatever manner you see fit. I'm going to do the traditional one. Could, I was encouraging whooping. Um, finally, all that remains uh, is for me to thank you, the audience, for being here 
on a pretty typical Melbourne evening, which Ian, who lives in Brisbane, was complaining about. <laughs> Thank you and good evening.